Frederick Eichen. I write in security analysis, and today I'm talking to Will Thompson of Massive Capital. I've long been a reader of their letters. They're a real assets-focused uh, long-short fund, and I decided to do a written Q&A with them, talking about some of the broader themes and their and their process, and then. Russia invaded Ukraine, the sanctions kicked in, and a lot of commodity markets experienced tremendous volatility. So I thought, why not complement the written piece with a short conversation and pairing some of the short-term moves and the longer structural imbalances and the geopolitics surrounding it all. And um, with that, none of this is investment advice. This is purely for entertainment purposes. Everything expressed on here is either will or my personal opinion. Don't, we're not your fiduciaries. Don't invest in stocks based on this podcast or anything else. And with that, well, let's go. Oh, and just a quick note for the first part of the conversation, Will's little daughter was present in the office. Very cute, very adorable. Um, so if you hear some noises in the background, that's Will working from his home office, um, taking care of his daughter. And I hope you don't mind. And that's, that's just life. So let's go. Um, so let's start. So let's start right there. Will, thanks for taking the time. I really appreciate it. I thought this was going to be very topical. And my, yeah, like, is it a great time to be on real assets? Or is it just too crazy, too volatile, too complex and unpredictable? Yeah, so I think that uh, if you have the stomach for the volatility, it's a great time. Um, I would also say, though, that the last couple of years have been a good time also because they've sort of been ignored and in the background. So you've been able to do a lot of research, do a lot of work, get yourself positioned well, um, admittedly not knowing that this was coming, um, events in Ukraine and whatnot. But um, it's been a nice quiet period where a lot of work can be done to prep for periods like this. Now, right now, I think you know, again, if you can stomach the volatility and you've got a long-term perspective, um, there's a lot of opportunities. Uh, but I think there's going to be a lot of opportunities for the next decade. I think that this, what we're seeing now in Ukraine, um, what we're seeing sort of with the U.S. and China, uh, we're seeing the breakdown of the global trading system that's been in place for 30 years. Uh, I'm not saying there isn't going to be global trade or anything like that, but what comes next is going to be very different from the past 30 years. Um, and it's going to be very good, I think, for, for real assets and natural resources. Right. It's going to be good for the owners of real assets and bad for us renters. But let me, let me ask you something. So to me, the last few weeks, it's one of those periods when there's there's so many moving pieces right and like a lot of markets whether it's energy or nickel like metals or agricultural goods fertilizer there's there's a lot of headlines there's a lot of volatility and to me as a non-specialist it always feels like okay there's no way i can keep up and like really understand what's going on so i'm curious in those periods of time where do you focus your attention and where do you go for high quality information meaning what kind of people or sources or like how do you how do you assess what's really going on and whether the market is set, is reacting correctly or you know whether the headline narrative is off base where do where do you 
how do you spend your time and, and your attention in, in those very volatile moments? Um, you know, look, we're equity investors. So we buy slices of companies. So when things get crazy, uh, I go back to the basics. And I, I pick a company and I say, things are crazy. I'm really distracted. I'm looking at oil. I'm looking at natural gas. I'm, I'm looking at, at the differentials between them in one place versus another. I'm distracted by something in Africa. I say, let's shut it all down. Let's pull out a 10K or annual report. And let's, let's focus on a company. Now, maybe, maybe this company is impacted by all these things going around, but you know, there's still a lot of company specific work to be done, right? These aren't, you know, we're not placing commodity bets per se, like in futures markets or something. Um, so I need to be concerned with the operations of a business, the management team, et cetera. Um, now, you know, these times uh, or, or when global events are, are coming at us fast like they are now, it's even more important for us to understand the management teams. Like they become even more critical than usual. Um, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, Warren Buffett is almost always famous for saying, you know, he wants to own a business an idiot can run, right? Well, no business an idiot can run anymore. Things are too complicated. Uh, but there are times when, you know, management teams can coast a little bit. Management team cannot coast right now even more critical for us to understand who we're getting in bed with as partners. Um, but so I, I always return to a company. I wake up and I say, it's been too crazy. Let me pick one company either in our portfolio and just reassess the thesis, or let me just at random pick a company from our list of, and we always have a list of companies we want to look at, you know, and I'm just going to look at that today. In terms of keeping track of everything though, and you know, we have, and I believe you've talked to Chip about this very specific universe, right? And so every morning I get up and I have a sheet of paper basically that shows what our universe looks like in terms of industries. And it has the industries, if you will, that we're in currently in the portfolio highlighted in one color, the industries in our sort of watch lists highlighted in another color, and then industries that we're not even, you know, we don't have anything we're looking at, you know, they're just there. Um, I'll start always with the portfolio industries and review research there and review sort of information there, start at the top, go down to the bottom, and sort of try and keep it very organized. Because again, to your point, there's stuff kicking off everywhere, and it's very hard to keep track of. Um, get through that, you go to the next industries. And I mean, we start always with uh, subject matter expertise and developing that list of who to follow on say Twitter or whose blogs to read, things of that nature. That just takes time. Uh, and I would, I'd love to say that there was a, a great and easy source, but there really isn't. I would say though that I do find things like Reuters and newswires and sort of these more almost traditional like reporting firms as opposed to say the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, where things are starting to bleed into sort of a combination of news and opinion. I find them very helpful in keeping track of all the events, especially someone like Reuters, who literally has got like a, a page associated with every country on earth. Um, 
And so starting at some of those more factual or what one hopes is factual level is, uh, is very value added. Yeah. So let's take, I mean, not, actually, not let's actually take a look at that page, but if you think about that page, right, your sort of industry overview or real asset universe overview. Yeah. Um, and you think back sort of how you came into this year, and I assume there are sort of, and, and we have that in, in the Q&A, right? There are certain areas where there's like a longer term structural imbalance and there's an opportunity there. And now the world's been reshuffled a little bit and a lot of short-term factors hit that kind of long-term out. So I'm, so I'm curious how, that, how that's changed when you, when you look back one or two months. Like what's, is anything come to the forefront that you're spending a lot of time on that you think is interesting? Do you get a lot more tactical or is it sort of you stick to the same themes and it's just some things have accelerated? How do you think about kind of the, the big reshuffle going on and whether it changes, you know, how does it, yeah, just. Well, it definitely has accelerated. So we have one big theme, if you will. So our portfolio, you look at our portfolio, you zoom out and we say we invest in sustainable real assets, which we consider to be economically and environmentally sustainable. And that can be anything, right? You can be a gold miner, a diamond miner, et cetera. And then we have this section of our portfolio, which is our sort of biggest opportunity set and represents the largest single segment, which is this sort of transition to a low carbon economy. One of the things we've been thinking about quite a bit over the last couple of years is this emerging sort of deglobalization or multipolarity in the world where it's no longer this global US driven trading system. And I would say that, you know, we, we've seen multiple events over the last couple of years, whether that's sanctions in China, whether that's Iran, um, whether that's sort of some countries in Europe going in a more authoritarian direction or less, et cetera, where the rules of the game are starting to fracture a little bit. And this move by Putin, in our opinion, has thrown that into overdrive. Um, it, it's not clear to me that, for instance, the West is a overarching, the West, Europe, United States, as an overarching entity, is a single entity. But at the very least, China and Russia uh, over the last couple of years have divided us a little bit along those lines. I think what we're going to see next is the US and Europe going off in our own directions a little bit more, um, just because we have different interests, right? So in, in, in the global sphere, if you will, there are no friends, there are only interests. Uh, but we're starting to see everyone going off in their own direction with their own interests, following their own agendas. Uh, and we think that that is going to accelerate now. Um, especially because with Russia moving into Ukraine, we have the obvious energy problems in Europe, uh, but we're going to start to have food problems throughout the rest of the world. You, Ukraine um, and Russia combined are you know, two of the largest, most significant exporters of food globally, especially wheat and barley, corn, things of that nature, sunflower oil. Um, countries like Egypt and Nigeria get as much as half their calories from uh, grain shipped in from the Ukraine and Russia. Uh, and so people are going to have to start making decisions about protecting their own country's interests. 
And you already saw that with uh, China recently in regards to um, potash exports. So a couple of years ago, China had uh, this, uh, a, a form of swine flu, right? And they eat a lot of pork in China. They culled their herd and, and they're trying to rebuild it now. Okay, they haven't really gotten rid of the swine flu, much like COVID, these things are really hard to actually get rid of. You need to learn to live with them. But in trying to rebuild you know, their herd of pigs, and, and they don't actually call it a herd, a, a bunch of pigs is called something else. But in trying to rebuild their herd, they're sucking in food from everywhere. Um, they've decided that they can't suck in enough, but rice is grown mostly with potash fertilizer. And so you've seen them already say, we need all this rice to try and rebuild our, our, our herd. We are not exporting potash anyway. Um, or I'm sorry, not potash, phosphates, excuse me, uh, phosphate-based fertilizers. Um, so, you know, countries are gonna start to make their own decisions about what's in their own interest. That's gonna create friction costs through the global trading system. And every time a country tries to, you know, put sanctions on someone, or increase tariffs, that just chips away uh, at the system that we've been operating under for the last, you know, whatever, since the end of World War II. Um, and I hate to say it, but in some regards, the U.S. is at the forefront of that. Um, you know, the, the World Trade Organization has a board that's supposed to uh, sort of deal with trade issues that come up. Um, and that board hasn't met in a couple of years and it hasn't met in a couple of years because it doesn't have a, a quorum. Um, and it doesn't have a quorum because the United States has chosen not to nominate people uh, for it, right? So, you know, uh, the system we built and have relied upon for so many years has been falling apart and it's going to continue to fall apart, I think. Okay, well, that's... That's, that's okay, a lot bigger than... And I was thinking, all right, so so what do you make with that then? Because because I right the sort of this long term trend of um, decarbonization, right? They're sort of kind of obvious. I don't know. I don't know that they're obvious investments, but they're sort of obvious places where to look, right? And now, what you just what you just described. I mean, I hate to use the word transitory, but I'm always coming back like, okay, is this just like a one or two year sort of disruption and you know something that people who operate directly in the commodities markets are invested in but like you kind of look through or is this something where you're like no wait a second we have to like reflect this in our portfolio somehow because this is going to be around for the longer term is that am i understanding you right like i think so yes and and so I'm, i'm curious since you can sort of operate across the supply chain right like or across the value chain where is there like an obvious place to go? Is it just like, okay, fertilizers, like I'm going to the producers because there's always like another step, right? And and you, as you mentioned, like where you are, like which country you're investing in and where you are in, in terms of location becomes important. So like, I'm just curious, like, is there, do you reshuffle? Like, is there a lot of changes that, that happen in your portfolio or just sort of you have a few favorites and they kind of a, a few companies that are always best positioned or how? How nitty gritty does Are you asking sort of more generally or in our portfolio in particular? Well, sort of generally how you think about it. And then also, I guess, how you would how you would express it. Is it as simple as, well, you know, the world needs fertilizer and, and agricultural goods. So like, OK, there's like a handful of companies and that's the obvious bet. Or are there like second order and third order effects where yeah. like 
I don't, I, I think the second and third order effects are gonna be much more important. And so the reason for that is because as we go sort of back, let's say, to a sort of, let's call pre-World War II period, okay, a deglobalized period, or let's call it a less globalized period. And, and keep in mind, when I'm saying less globalized, I'm not saying that like international trade dries up per se. There's been plenty of international trade before globalization, but there's sort of a, you know, you could start building a product in China before it's finished. You ship it to Taiwan where it gets a little more. Then you ship it to, you know, and it, it drops off, a product hits, you know, six different countries before the final product. That type of thing is, is sort of what starts to fall apart. Um, Pre-World War II, you look and you see that, especially on the commodity side, you had uh, spheres of influence or spheres of operation where countries would import from. And the pricing would be quite relevant to that, that sort of importing oil from the Middle East to uh, the UK, right? Like that had its own pricing system. Um, you're going to see a proliferation of uh, prices. You're going to need to start to consider currencies again. Currencies have not been, you know, people have not really thought about currencies for a couple of years now. Um, we're going to need to start thinking about currencies again. You're going to need to start looking at the price of your commodities in different currencies because that's going to represent what it costs in different places. And the costs are going to be different because the costs of production in different locations where those countries can import from is going to be different. Uh, and so we're going to see a fundamental reworking of trade flows, uh, I, I think, uh, along different geopolitical lines. And the repercussions of that are really going to be where you have to start to pay attention. So the example, or an example that I actually heard someone else, uh, a guy by the name of Peter Zayon, uh, give recently that was quite interesting um, that I hadn't thought of was the uh, potential for West African oil. And that's shifting. So right now, a lot of West African oil goes to China. But if China picks up more, slightly more oil from Russia, which it might do, but there's some, some real serious challenges and problems with that. Uh, and Europe decides they're going to take less oil from Russia and they need to fill that gap. The natural source is West Africa, where they can import it easily. It costs less. Uh, and, you know, the producers can probably charge the same thing that they charge going to China and keep that margin. Okay. And now China is coming up short on oil because they can't import enough from Russia. That, that uh, oil produced in Russia is produced in the West and the East. And those two systems are not necessarily connected. So it's not as if you can just say, well, Russian oil going to Europe can now just be piped to China. It can't. There's, there's no, that, that pipe doesn't exist. Uh, you have a pipe from fields in uh, Eastern Russia down to China, but the systems are not connected. So some of those second order effects, uh, I think are where the biggest opportunities are going to be found. Um, so I think the portfolios, in our case, you know, our portfolio, we've been building it with some of these ideas in mind already. And so, we're not going to change a lot of what we're doing. I would say that portfolios that are overly levered to those really complex supply chains that cross the globe multiple times, you know, 
those guys are going to experience significantly increased costs. Um, and that's going to squeeze margins. Got it. Any, any companies, I, I mean, I have to ask, but like any companies that come to mind as like obvious beneficiaries of, of what you just outlined, or is it sort of case by case? I think it's too case by case. I, I'd, uh, I'd say that the companies that will benefit most are companies that can operate their entire business within um, existing spheres of influence. So you take someone like Equinor on the oil side, right? It's all produced within Europe. It's all sold into Europe, basically all of their product. Okay, that's a, that's a real beneficiary. Some of the companies in our portfolio where it might be more challenging, you know, and, and these are things we're thinking about now are something like the DRC, some, a company like Ivanhoe, copper company, right? Where, you know, it is a, they're selling all that copper to China, but it's a Western company. They've got a lot of Chinese investors. You know, that, that is where things are going to get complicated and tricky. Um, and, you know, that might mean we decide to get out of Ivanhoe. Uh, we think at Ivanhoe, uh, and the Kamoa Kakula mine are, you know, it, it's a world-class mine, it's world-class management team. Um, but perhaps over time, that relationship with China proves counterproductive. As we're seeing, you know, it, it basically, it's something along the lines of what we're seeing with Chinese tech companies traded in uh, on like the New York Stock Exchange. Could that happen? Maybe. It's not my base case, but, you know, those are the types of companies, I think, where we're all going to need to start to get a little little clearer on the geopolitics associated with the businesses um, and where, where they operate, how they operate, who they're doing business with. I'm, I'm curious, you mentioned management earlier, right? And sort of um, the quality of management now plays a much more important role or is, you know, at least as important. And, and I guess my, my rule of thumb was always like, okay, management in some of these areas might be a little bit questionable, right? Like junior minors or like, things have have like sort of reputational issues um does there anybody do any firms stand out or like wh what does that actually mean do you think about it mostly in terms of like how they allocate capital or like their operational record or shareholder friendliness like what what actually distinguishes a really good management team in in this space from well i think from a like real assets in general extractive industries, so all your natural resources. Um, operational capability is obviously critical. And so that, that is, you know, having experience running large mining operations, having experience uh, operating manufacturing facilities, they're pretty unique skills. So I don't find that management teams that, for example, are like a large scale industrial company run by like the CFO. Um, I can't think of one off the top of my head, uh, but CFO becomes the CEO. The CFO has never done anything but accounting or something. Sometimes that works out just fine. Sometimes it doesn't, but it's not my preference. So I like someone uh, with operational experience, uh, especially when it comes to operating in say a dicier location. Um, in terms of sort of the geopolitical landscape that I just articulated, the political risk acumen of the management team is critical. And that, that's much harder to figure out 
it it's something you've got to really dig into the, their history to see if they've got it. Um, and just like, you know, there's, certain, there's two different things we think about when we think about politics and geopolitical risk. Um, one is political risk, which is politics impacting company operations specifically. And then there's geopolitical risk. Okay? And geopolitical risk is something like, you know, Russia invading Ukraine. Okay? It doesn't matter who you are, that impacts you if you're in the Ukraine. Right? Okay? It's not about you, it's about something else. You happen to be subject to political risk is an expertise. Okay. If you can manage political risk, uh, that's a real benefit to your business. And that's, you know, do you know how to lobby for rule change? Do you know who to talk to when there's a protest? You know, these are skill sets and networks of, of relationships and things of that nature. And so when thinking about management teams operating extractive industries or businesses with physical assets on the ground in a foreign country, um, we want to see political risk active. And so that, though, is, is purely a question of looking at the resume and making a judgment call and talking with, with the management team. When you talk with the management team, asking questions about things like, uh, I mean, at, posing political risk scenarios and seeing what the responses are is quite telling about whether someone has thought through these issues or not. Um, sometimes people don't think through them at all. Uh, I think that... <laughs> The best example of that one I have is I was getting a presentation for a, a, a manual of ideas uh, conference that I did together and I was going to present on, on political risk. And so I called up a handful of companies that are not in, in our sphere, okay? Disney and Facebook, okay? Called up Facebook. I said, so guys, how do you think about your political risk? They said, well, we don't have it. So what do you mean you don't have any political risk? This is, we, we don't know what you mean. We don't have any political risk. Okay. They clearly have a lot of political risk. They have regulatory risk. They have social issue risk. Now, that was five years ago or four years ago. The story's probably changed. But it called up Disney. And Disney had, a, had to put, I thought it was a great answer. They said, well, internally, whenever we do anything or whenever we deal with anyone, the question we always ask is, how would this reflect on the mouse? Mouse. <laughs> nice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's that's yeah. uh does operating yeah. in China or in you know whatever Xi'an province does that reflect well on the mouse? Well, probably not. So we're not gonna operate there. Um you know, so the ability of management team to articulate a strategy for thinking through uh how they're gonna deal with risks, um these these less tangible risks uh is quite important and and Certain management teams have got the skill set and others don't. And, you know, it's just the way it is, sort of like everything else with management teams. Is, is there such a thing as a compounder in your space? Right, so I was trying to figure out, like, are there companies that um, are basically right, like cash flow positive and can, can redeploy that and compound over? And I was thinking, OK, are there conglomerates? Maybe there's like, I mean, very few, maybe Glencore, but like very few of the trading houses are public. Right. So I was curious, like, is there maybe the royalty companies, but I'm not sure. So I'm curious, like, does that concept exist or is it really sort of your, you know, sort of dealing with the cycle and, um, you know, have, have to get I think, the... I think within some of the industrials, 
categories or some of the service providers to some of the natural resources companies, we can find compounders. Um, I think they're few and far between. Uh, I do think that we've been in a bit of a golden age for companies compounding, if you will. Uh, the last couple of years, it's been, you know, buy and hold as a strategy. Not that, you know, that strategy is deployed only into compounders, right? But, you know, uh, buy and hold has worked really well for the last, whatever, 15 years. Um, probably better than at any other period in, you know, recent memory. Uh, so you know, I'm, I'm not sure if compounders are going to be as widespread and prevalent going forward as they have been. Um, but in our space, they're definitely more limited. Um, not a lot of them, for sure. Uh, but, you know, I think our average holding period is two and a half years, something like that. Um, there are companies you can buy and hold for a while, uh, and they will They'll do well uh, through most of the cycle, but it's tough to hold anyone full cycle. Uh, that's it. why we're long short. And so to me, there was always this, this rule of thumb. If, I, if you see a commodity producer and they're trading at a low multiple, it's kind of the market discounting um, that they're over-earning right now, right? And there's going to be either demand destruction or a supply response, and it's sort of a, a counter indicator. And like, do you think, does that still hold I'm, I'm sort of wondering with at least what i'm learning about some of these markets is like there's a reticence to invest or like bringing on supply could be very time consuming expensive difficult so i'm like i'm curious like do you think that still holds or does is there in some cases where the market is just very slow and reluctant to get invested in some of these and, and a low multiple might multiple might actually be still indicative of, of value how do you think about that yeah i mean that old rule of thumb i suspect it mostly still holds I guess. Uh, at the same time, there are certainly some industries where the low multiples right now may not be indicative of. So, it, like copper is the one that comes to mind, um, and, and I I might be wrong. May, maybe someone like Freeport MacMoran's copper. May, maybe it's not trading at, at a low multiple. Um, I'll pull it up here, but um, you know, there. I do think that the commodity complex is going to experience some dramatic changes in trade flows, uh, and, and again, I think the. Russia, Ukraine is a sort of an interesting case study because when the Soviet Union collapsed, um, what collapsed in the Soviet Union was a lot of industrial production. What didn't collapse was a lot of natural resources and extractive industries. And so you have, you know, all these stories about, you know, people like Glencore and like Mark Rich and the commodity houses coming in and just just stripping everything there, basically. Um, everything that could be moved, so any commodity, was moved. Uh, and that's continued to be the case. And, and Russia largely has not rebuilt that industrial capacity. So, so Russia is still an exporter of, of commodities. And so that flooded the system over the last, you know, whatever, 20, 30 years uh, with, with cheaper commodities. And it, it sort of supercharged 
the the global supply chains and the sort of the fine tuning of a system right now that that is so finely tuned that it can't sort of withstand any hiccup in commodity prices. And that's that's going to change going forward. Um, you know, you're going to need to have more inventory on hand. You're going to need to be willing and capable of tolerating more friction costs. Um, so I don't think all the old indicators are going to hold going forward. That one might still be holding at, at the current time, depending on the commodity that you're talking about. Then. Do you have, I mean, you've talked about the spheres of influence before, right? And sort of going back to that, is there any kind of, I'm looking for like a, a template, right? Because like in the, so right now, like we have like 10 years of just investing growth and compounders and, you know, a certain theme worked. If you go back to maybe the 70s or early 80s, right, like very different market regimes, there were a lot more uh, trends and, and like a different kind of investor or trader thrived. So I'm curious if you think that the world is is changing and, and going to this multipolar state and like these spheres of influence. Is there anything in history where you're like reading up any any books you like or like any frameworks or templates that you go to and like, okay, what could this look like and how do I, um, is there any precedent for how to think about that? So I haven't found any, I've been looking. Um, and I've not had a lot of luck though. Uh, there are aspects of the period in between World War I and World War II that seem to be telling. Uh, and there's the period immediately prior to World War I, which in my mind seems quite instructive as well. Um, Not that I'm proposing, I just proposed two pre-World War periods. Yeah. I'm proposing world slightly war. ominous. <laughs> <laughs> ominous. Uh, but but that's that's not the implication there, or not yeah. meant to be the implication. Um, but there hasn't been a lot of great examples in my mind. Uh, there are sort of individual things, one-offs, you, you know, like sort of uh, oil pricing on oil pricing within its own sort of silos depending on the countries importing it and, and so the uk from from uh the persian gulf area prior to world war ii comes to mind but it, it's all examples sort of like that i think the i don't know a more international go anywhere type of investing is going to be profitable uh, and the period of time where we can all sort of sit back and comfortably buy like tech companies or something uh, without concern is is coming to an end um, and that there'll be more opportunities um, in sort of playing around the globe uh, as opposed to being so concentrated, let's say, in tech in the U.S. or something like that one is so i grew up in germany right and obviously germany last 10 years shut down almost all of its nuclear power and it's kind of you know, kind of makes my uh my hair stand up just to like think about um how all of that transpired but here we are right and like going forward um it seems like policy in europe is going to be different right and the, they recognize that this was probably not such a smart move having said that and you talked about this before things like uranium it's it's not actually easy to 
invest as a public market investor, right? There's, there's, and, and I think this might be true for some other areas in your universe as well, where there's just a limited amount of public companies um, that are investable. So I'm curious, does, does Europe and sort of a, a shift maybe plays into decarbonization, but, but maybe not, because there's, there's a lot of other things going on. Um, are there opportunities do you think that come out of that? Or is it sometimes that just these shifts, you just have to like, as a public equity investor, you just have to say, okay, I can't, I can't participate in this. It's too, you know, it's just, it'll happen in private markets or, or inside large companies. Um, well, I, I think that events in Russia, Ukraine throw the decarbonization trend in Europe into overdrive. And so I think that there's a lot of companies that could benefit. Uh, you start with, you know, obvious beneficiaries being people like utilities. Uh, the other beneficiaries being people like um, energies or Siemens energies, companies that are building energy infrastructure. Uh, and then, you know, Europe has actually got a fair amount of resources. It doesn't necessarily have a lot of oil, mind you, uh, but there's a lot of mining in Finland, Norway, et cetera. There's a, there is still a fair amount of oil and natural gas in uh, the North Sea. And, you know, there's a lot of, uh, a lot of renewables in Spain and, you know, France has got a large industrial complex. So I think there's a lot of theoretical beneficiaries from a reshoring uh, and a energy system rework being thrown into overdrive. Um, some of those, a lot of them probably do occur in bigger companies. And what we found is that within those bigger companies, when something starts to hit about a third of revenue, a project or, or a, a, a new process or, or something like that, when it starts to account for a third of revenue, that's when um, equity markets start to pay attention. And a lot of those things look like they were going to be really drawn out from our opinion, right? So it's going to take a long time for some of these decarbonization trends to become meaningful components of uh, uh, these large industrial conglomerates. Now, you know, Technip Energies has a huge hydrogen segment. Now, it's not huge in re relation to the rest of the business, but it's pretty big in hydrogen in the grand scheme of things. Um, I don't know, maybe five years uh, instead of 15 years, or maybe 10 years instead of 15 years, it becomes a third of revenue, uh, depending on what the European Union does. Um, you know, if the European Union starts issuing joint debt to help finance um, large-scale energy rework, you know, reworking of the system, I mean, you know, they could throw a lot of money at the problem. Uh, probably wouldn't all be spent well, uh, as happens when you throw money at a problem, but uh, there will be beneficiaries. And I would be very surprised if, just like the United States, they don't have some sort of made in Europe rules. Um, you know, so there'll be beneficiaries and they're going to be Europeans um, or European companies. Same thing for the United States, same thing for China. Uh, so, um, and they're definitely. Right. And something I, I didn't catch any, but Technip, like, is that, would, would you as an investor then kind of just watch it until that, um, like, is that, is that your approach You sort of watch it until that part of the business gets big enough for the market to notice and you sort of try to time it or you no, try to grow with we'll, it? We'll, we'll try and be in there early. Um, we'll try not to be in there too early. Um, you know, so what, 
you know, we may not have, we may have been keeping an eye on it, let's say for the next three years. Uh, now maybe we'll keep an eye on it for a year and see if the thesis or the thought process is playing out and whether it makes sense what they're doing and then we'll go, I, you know. Um, so we're definitely not gonna, we try to have an understanding of the cycle and where we are, but the best we can do is sort of divide it into thirds and say, we think we're in the top, we think we're in the bottom, we think we're in the middle. Um, we're no better at timing the cycle than anyone else. I'd, I'd, it'd be great if we were, but we aren't. Um, and so we'll, you know, we'll try to get it when it's in its bottom third, which I think is right now. Um, could be wrong. Well, that sounds, bottom third of the cycle sounds like the next couple of years will still be pretty interesting for you. Yeah, so, uh, yeah, yeah. I think we're, we're just ahead of the upswing, hopefully, for a lot of this stuff. Well, I really appreciate this. I'll, I'll let you get back to your daughter, but I, I think this is going to pair really well with sort of, um, you know, the background on, on what you guys are doing and uh, let people know where to find more. I, I always enjoy your letters. I think they're really yeah. thoughtful and uh, much appreciate that you're taking the time. Yeah, no, well, happy to do it. Um...